Hello and welcome to Nature Snippets, a podcast about the natural world, about organisms you may find in your backyard and beyond. I'm Declan McCabe, coming to you from St. Michael's College in Colchester, Vermont. Hi folks, and welcome back. If you are a fan of birds, as I of course am, you need to also be a fan of bugs. Uh, You can't have birds unless you have insects. And so we were lucky in my class this week with my biology senior seminar to be joined by the author of the book that was assigned for the semester. And the book is Rebugging the Planet by Vicky Hurd. Vicky was kind enough to join us from London after her dinner and chat with students, tell us about her book, tell us about insects, and also answer a lot of student questions. So that will be the podcast for this week. And uh, it'll be both video and audio if you're hearing this in the usual venue. And you can also find and click around and you can find a, the video version of the podcast. But otherwise, uh, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us as usual. And I'll turn this over to Vicky Hurd. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. And um, uh, it's, it's lovely to see you all. On this, uh, is it Wednesday? I've lost track. Wednesday. Um, and thank you very much for being interested in my book, um, which came out um, a while ago, but I've been talking to people about it. That was one of the big objectives of writing it and, and having that title, Rebugging the Planet, because I'd got, um, I, I work a lot in the environment movement. I tell you a little bit about myself, just so you know where I'm coming from. I've been a campaigner for 30 years. Um, I've been working in organisations like Friends of the Earth that you might have heard of. I've done work for Greenpeace. Um, I've done work for the government. Um, but I've spent a lot of time working in organisations about farm policy, um, farm and food. Um, you know, we th- eat three times a day, but in the UK, I don't know if it's the same in America, um, people don't think enough about food, where it comes from, how it's produced and manufactured and transported. and politicians are particularly bad at this they only get excited about food when there's either a crisis or they can boast about food prices being low um so i've been working on that for for some years and we made some progress um but one of the reasons that i got got into that was because i um love insects and invertebrates i always have some reason i was never looking up at the birds i was always looking at the ground at the ants um and if you read my book you know i tried to start an ant farm when i was very little and they all escaped, but I was I was so keen on on what they were doing, why they were doing, why were they carrying dead bodies of ants along the ground? You know, what what were they doing with those leaves? Anyway, I, I was very interested from a very early age. Um, I think it was a a natural instinct. And when you look at it, a lot of children are naturally instinct in, interested in the tiny creatures, the things that so don't look like us. They don't have faces like us. You know, they don't. They're tiny. They're weird. And and children are usually very fascinated but um <clears throat> very quickly if their carers or their school or anybody starts to talk about invertebrates in a negative way children very quick you know get the fear or they get the negativity and they start to be negative about them whereas that early curiosity and fascination we i really want to nurture and I, I, one of the things about the book was to encourage people to see themselves as if if they like if they understand why invertebrates are important that they can be an ambassador for the bugs so um, anyway that was one of the things I I really wanted to do with this book I also um, I I think it's the same in the US that there's more interest in invertebrates now people kind of get it I think it's a lot to do with the fact that there's been big campaigns about bees we've had a lot of campaigns about bees because the neonicotinoid 
um, pesticides have been decimating populations. Um, they're known to be particularly problematic for wild bee populations. Um, you've got your monarch butterflies, monarch butterflies in America and other campaigns and um, awareness raising initiatives where you kind of have a bee watch and people can watch, see what bees they found, try and identify them and, and then send in the data. So they become part of a science analysis of the healthiness of populations and that citizen science I think has raised a huge amount of awareness so it's got it's got some science but it's also been really useful in getting people caring more and the third reason I, I wrote the book I thought it was a good time because people are more interested and there was a lot of tv program talking about them so people understood more but I was also I, I remember I was sitting on a train on, on a long journey and I'd be just reading because I, I am a fellow of the Royal Entomological Society I think you've got the Institute of Entomology in America um I can't remember anyway but the, we have one in the UK called the Royal Entomological Society and I'm a member because my master's was on entomology study of insects and um i managed to become a fellow and I get their magazine and I get a lot of information about invertebrates even though it's not directly related to my job in terms of lobbying politicians every day um that was telling that was really scaring me I don't know if you've all read you know the data the long longitudinal studies of um in Germany of the reductions in flying insects in the UK we've got a lot of studies on bees showing you know impacts of climate change you've got global studies on worms showing impacts uh, of um, climate change but over over the last few years these studies have become multiple and they've got more and more attention so we've had headlines that you know are we facing insect again and is there an insect apocalypse and all these kind of headlines mean that more people are interested in knowing what the facts are and whilst you know it, the jury's still out about whether you know it, it is an absolute collapse ahead of us all the studies you know, because we need more. We always need more science. You know, we need you people doing more more research everywhere. Because one of the problems with a lot of the research that's showing declines in invertebrates, not just insects, is the fact that they're often in wealthy countries or in countries where we've got, you know, institutes, um, research institutes that are able to do the, the research. But in the global south, in some parts of the world, we haven't got those long-term studies showing, you know, healthiness or otherwise of the insect populations and as you all know there are millions of insects out there in terms of species you know it we, we only have a very small snapshot because we're only looking at certain species bees being the most common one but often we're only looking at pest species a lot of um, my work when I was doing pest management which was my master's degree it was looking at how we can manage pests it's all about pests it was all about how can we control these beasts and and yet a very small tiny infinitesimal percentage of invertebrates are actually pests or problematic the rest are actually either neutral just doing their thing or they're extremely useful for us they have the right to exist in themselves I, I believe that but you know if you're talking to people saying what a, what a flies fall they don't do anything for me they're horrible you know they do an amazing job for us so the fact that a huge amount of research is on you know how we can get rid of them that's a problem I think but um anyway to go back my sitting on my train seat I was sitting on the train and I was musing about these terrible sort of long-term studies that I was reading about and I had the idea because rewilding has been had a massive amount of interest in the UK and across Europe a lot of interest a lot of organizations are set up there's a lot of land being allocated to rewilding and I think that's great it's brilliant and there's a new there was a new book that I just read about called rebirding so these two things thought, well, if you have rewilding, you have rebirding, why not rebugging? 
And I wanted to, I, I started to write a list of 100 things you can do to help the bugs. And to cut a very long story short, I happened to meet uh, publishers and I was, they were saying they wanted to do some brochures about uh, books about rewilding. And I said, oh, I had this great idea about rebugging, 100 ideas to rebug. And they immediately, you know, leapt on the idea and said, how about a book? So that, that's kind yeah. of where it came from. Um, so I just wanted to give you that background. I'm, I'm actually a campaigner. I'm not, I, this is my second book, but my first book was all about food and farming, um, a bit more work related, but um, it was a great pleasure to write this because I was delving into science and research and thinking about all sorts of, you know, things around sort of the needs that we have as society compared to the needs that insects have and things like that. So it was a great joy to write. And in fact, I wrote about half of it during the COVID lockdown that we had in 2021. And so that was a great thing to be able to do instead of going on holiday. But I did do, a, um, I've got a bit of a slideshow, which um, is some of the bugs that I see every day in my garden. And one of the reasons I um, show a lot of the bugs is to show people how beautiful they are um, and to show people that they too can see these bugs. One of the reasons is we've all got smartphones now so we can take pictures of bugs and then zoom in and see just how extraordinary they are and even identify them because you've got brilliant apps that you know you can identify um, invertebrates um, and other species very easily um, and so I tell people that you've got these wild things you don't need to go to a rewilded area some somewhere across the country you've got wildlife by your nose as you step on outside your door you've got wildlife in your house and a lot of people think of the wildlife in their house you know the spiders or the flies or the even the cockroaches as nasties but I try to talk to them about actually most a lot of them are, are actually quite useful, especially spiders. Extremely useful if you don't like the flies, if you don't like the fleas, if you don't like all sorts, they, the spiders can be your real friend. But anyway, everybody is surrounded by wildlife unless they're in a completely sterile concrete jungle. And I live in a concrete jungle in, in a sense. I live in um, the middle of London. And uh, I'm anyway, you'll see from my slides what um, what I've got around. But I'll just go through a few things and then we can start having questions because I'd love to hear your questions. OK, I will take it to slideshow mode. Yeah, so this is a, um, a bee fly which is one of my favorite invertebrates. Um, and I might, this was my first best smartphone picture, which I took many, many years ago. Um, and I, I, it managed to stay still long enough for me to um, take a picture on its primula where it was drinking. And I love bee flies because they've got an incredible life cycle. They, they mimic the bee. Um, and actually they lay their eggs in the nest chamber of solitary bees, like a tawny mining bee who, who makes a, it finds a hole in the ground, lays its eggs and puts pollen and food for it. And this beast comes and lays its eggs and that hatches and eats the bee, the bee larvae. Anyway, it's a, so it's a predator, um, which I think, you know, it looks so cute, it looks so sweet, but it's actually quite an amazing thing. But they're also incredibly important pollinators. So, you know, a wonderful beastie to talk to people about and get people to think, to look out for them because they come out here in about March. So it's quite a nice time to, to suddenly see these spring beasts coming around. So a little bit about um, what I was going to talk about, but I won't, I won't talk too much, I hope. But um, uh, why I started writing this book, I've talked to you about that. I talked to a lot of people about their own space, be it a garden, it could be a window ledge or it could be a local park or a local road verge um you know in the uk we're you know we're very developed in the uk we're a tiny island with far too many people on it so we've got a lot of roads and a lot of those has verges and they can be an incredible refuge an incredible corridor for invertebrates to travel along if it's not 
covered in pesticides or you know a moan to it to within an inch of its life if you allow the wildflowers to grow things like that so anybody can help by either in their own home in their own garden or in their space or try talking to their local politicians um, about looking after the green spaces in your area so i talk about that in the book a lot and i've got lots of tips about how to be political with a small p how you can get out there and talk to politicians um, who you can join with in order to do that because as much as you can do in your own life in your garden or in what you buy or what you eat it's not enough you have to act as a citizen to get the changes we know we need i'll, I'll talk a little bit about that these are all insects that I've uh, found around my garden. That's not insects, that's mite. That's a um, bush cricket, an orange ladybird, and a buff-tail bumblebee. So all I'm actually an appalling photographer. I have no skills, and I've taken all those photographs. So it so it shows that it's possible with a smartphone to me to look like you're a good photographer. And also it shows how beautiful they are. I think they're stunning. And when people see them up close, they can start to get a relationship which isn't negative and this I start to talk to people about why we need to nurture the invertebrates this is a vapor moth that came into my kitchen one day my son happened to pick up my phone and take a photograph of it and the wonderful thing about this it's got those huge antennae and it looks beautiful I think it's stunning it's a stunning beast it's tiny but stunning and the, that's the male and the female is really not very stunning. She's just a lump. She has no wings and she just emits the pheromones, which he's got those antennae to pick up to go and mate. But the, the, the female is just so ugly. <laughs> it's just really sad. Um, but I've got the, got the male in my garden. I quite often get them in my garden and I just love that look. It looks so imperial. But I've talked to you about some of the threats just to re reiterate. Again, this, this is actually not from my garden. This was a, a garden tiger moth. Um, caterpillar, which I happened to spot when I was on holiday up in the Orkney Isles, which are uh, islands above Scotland. And it was beautiful. It was eating the grass like that. It was just so, I just love the way it's using its um, legs. But talking about threats, we, in, the, in the UK, we've got a massive problem, huge problem. We've got net loss of wild pollinators, the bees, the wasps, the flies, the, the moths. In the uplands, which are really, should be a really rich area, of you know halved in crops they're less because you've got the pollinators because they're attracted some of the pollinators are attracted to the crops but it's still a real serious drop over the last few decades as a result a lot to do with farming and that's to do with loss of habitats loss of refuges loss of corridors that this is all creating habitat fragmentation which i'm sure you all know about probably more than i i'm, I'm no expert these days but i do talk about it a bit in the book that loss of habitat and it's happened in rural areas enormously because we've ripped out hedgerows, we've ripped out trees, we've ripped out the messy bits, and we've enlarged fields in order to create ever cheaper, more uniform food sources for our food system. But there's also climate change. As climate climatic change, obviously, it's going to have a huge impact on um, species which have a very high volume low volume to surface ratio is that the right way around anyway tiny with a low low volume large surface area they're going to be hugely vulnerable to climatic changes temperature changes moisture changes they won't they can adapt they they're obviously insects are incredibly adaptable they've been adapting over um millennia with the with their surroundings with the flowering plants as they evolved but 
it's very hard for them to adapt quickly, especially those that aren't generalists in terms of what they can eat and more able to deal with different, some invertebrates obviously very able to deal with different climatic situations, but most, you know, they will struggle if it's there's dramatic changes, particularly um, high temperatures, drought and um, flooding, things like that. So climate change is a big, big risk. And I do talk about um, what's happened to the worms, which are obviously hugely important for, for us and for um, nature, but they suffer massively if you've got extremes of temperature and moisture changes. You've also got invasive species and diseases. You know, we're all moving around the world so much. We're moving products around the world so much. And we've got some real horrors that come into the UK. Where, well, they're not horrors. They're just invertebrates doing their thing. Um, but they can cause a massive crash in populations of species. Like we've got a flatworm, I think, that's come over from New Zealand and eating our worms. Anyway, um, invasive species and diseases can, can have a huge impact on um, invertebrates. And then pollution, I probably don't need to tell you about this, chemicals, pesticides, fertilizers. And I, I did have a good look at plastic pollution because microplastics, are a, a, there's a growing body of evidence just how unbelievably ubiquitous microplastics are. So those tiny nodules of plastic, which can be really micro, really tiny, and look like food to invertebrates. And uh, there's studies on coral reefs where they're ingesting um, microplastics, which and also the microplastics having a large surface area can carry disease and can carry pollution very easily into an, a population. So plastic pollution is a huge problem. And then there's noise pollution, light pollution, and pollution from the radiation from our phones 5g and above is uh, there's studies showing that they can actually have a really harmful impact on flying insects and insects themselves because they've got small body size they can absorb the very high level of energy in the um uh, that frequency of uh, um uh, signals it's it's got a lot of high energy in it so there is an issue there we should be thinking about i should move on anyway next uh, this is a hook-banded wasp hoverfly, and I partly talk about this because a lot of people would look at this from a distance and, and see a, a wasp or a bee and, you know, kill it or run away from it or tell their children to be frightened. And hoverflies are so amazing. They're incredible um, travellers. They travel thousands of miles to get to the UK. Um, they have, we have thousands of, of them, um, hundreds of species in the UK. There's thousands globally. I think this one's amazing looking. I think it's beautiful. It's also um, incredibly good pollinator. As I said earlier, it, it's a lot of these species are incredibly important natural pollinators for our wildlife, for our crops and for our gardens. And I, so I'm talking to people that the role that they have, that people need to understand that more. And then they, if they see something that looks yellow and black, it's not a yellow jacket, it's a hoverfly. And even the wasps, the yellow jackets, as you call them there, are so important. The yellow, the, the wasps, incredibly important in terms of pest control. Uh, and an average wasp um, nest can eat, I think, uh, um, about between one and two kilograms of flies um, and maggots and larvae of pests from your garden every year. They're incredibly good at uh, controlling pests that you might not want. People will think of them as pests because they think they're going to sting them, but they largely won't. Um, and they move on every year. They don't use the same nest every year. So I talk to people about that sort of relationship that they could have. They could actually think of wasps as being there. They're helping them. And uh, I think that sometimes 
helps people to understand things a bit better. This is about sharing space. I'm just using these pictures from my garden to illustrate a point about we should be sharing the space better with the invertebrates. And you might be able to see this is a um, passion flower. It's a not non-native to the UK, but somebody gave me a, a passion flower plant and they're stunning. I don't know if you know these um, stunning flowers with the nectary at the base of the flower. And here you've got a, a bee, a bumblebee. And if you look closely, an ant. So we used to have a book when I was little called Ant and Bee. It was a children's book. So sharing, sharing an ectory in, in a space together. Um, and just to illustrate, we should be sharing our space better, providing messy bits, providing weeds and wildflowers in your garden um, and in the, in the farm by farming differently to allow the invertebrates to share that space and often they're very useful in that space for you um, but it's just about the whole humanity as a whole sharing space with nature better we've taken so much we think we own it we don't and we shouldn't we need to be sort of looking after it better but I just think it's quite cute and Antona be having a drink again you can see I've got a bit of a passion for hoverflies and this was again about the um this is a huge ho um, hoverfly if you see it flying people might be really alarmed it's 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 a bit you know that that big I think two centimeters at its largest size but it's completely harmless and one thing about it it's um larvae are actually allowed to live they, they lay their eggs in a wasp nest and the larvae are left alone by the wasps because they will um clear the debris clear the um mess in the wasp nest so they're acting as a cleaner and then they emerge from the wasp nest and do other things, but the larvae are actually uh, allowed to live in the wasp nest, which I think is fascinating. Um, so I talk a bit in the book about what you can do um, as individuals in, in your garden, things, you know, avoiding chemicals, um, planning to have flowers throughout the whole year. So there's always food for invertebrates, buying peat and pesticide free things, growing more food because often they're flowering plants. So you'll attract pollinators and you'll also get some food yourself and if you have a compost heap things like that but I also talk about these these pictures on the side are some amazing things that local um, authorities have done local communities the one on the top um, is in Costa Rica and it's a but the, the actually it's a suburb of the capital called Cobarita Cocobita and it it's a, called a sweet city because what they did a few years ago is start to see their city as it's completely concrete it's not good for us it's not good for the wildlife and they started to introduce a whole range of initiatives greening their city greening their borough and putting in wildflower areas um, making the river clean again but one of the amazing things with why it got international attention is they gave citizenship to the bees they decided to allow the insects to have be citizens and have rights and I thought that was so lovely and it's a way of publicity for what they're doing in Cocorita but it's also a lovely idea and it's about sharing we all live on this city in the city together we should be able to live together and they've done amazing things and there are sweet cities across the globe that you can look up the, the one below is in in Wales which is a, a, a nation in the United Kingdom and they've they were the first bee town and they did a similar sort of thing. They made bee friendly spaces. They stopped mowing the verges at the wrong time. So they allowed the wildflowers to grow. So the bees had and other invertebrates had somewhere to have a refuge and uh, drink. Anyway, um, there's other examples in the book. There's also lots of examples of amazing invertebrates in the book. It's not a book saying, on, you know, it's not a um, 
kind of show and tell book, you know, um, the amazing world of insects, but they are amazing. So you can't help but have a lot of um, stories in there about amazing insects like cockroaches or spiders, all sorts of things I've got in there in boxes and throughout the book. Um, but I also talk in the book a lot about how vital they are and I don't really think I need to tell you this we can talk about it but you know how the, the pollination I've already talked about the soils um, cleaning water removing dead bodies um, uh, allowing uh, trees to grow um, seed dispersal um, yeah it's so many ways they're absolutely vital for our existence and um, you know we wouldn't be here without them. They could survive without us, uh, certainly, and that's something we think about. I do have a bit of a counterfactual in the book. Um, if if we if we didn't save them, what would happen to us? And I think we'd very quickly fade. Um, we'd be scrabbling an existence with old clothes, and um, if there'd be very few of us left. But at the end of the book, I also talk about if we do rebug the planet and we do rebug our lives, what would happen? And it would be a lot richer. It would smell better. It would look more colourful. We'd have more birds. We'd have um, uh, we'd be thinking differently about life. We'd have a more three D um, existence. So it's really important to, to understand why they're so important. So one of the most important um, is obviously for our food is the earthworm. It does incredible things. One of the things I talk about in the book is how they are really important um, ve vectors. They move microbes from one place to another and those microbes and um uh, spores um you know mycelium sp uh, fungal spores absolutely crucial for a soil to be healthy so they provide that as well as providing the spaces for water and air um uh, doing the detritus um uh, consumption so they break plant matter down into um smaller uh, sizes, as do springtails and other soil-dwelling animals, breaking down plant matter to, to, in a way that the then the microbes can then get at it and release the nutrients for the plants. Um, so going on to what we can do, I, I think we can talk about that. There's so many things you can do, changing what you eat. This is a crab spider that I, I often get in my garden. Um, I think they're wonderful because they they're spiders that don't have webs and they just stand there with their arms out and catch flies and bees this is a honeybee unfortunately but I did found out that the, a, um, a bush has actually um, evolved to emit a pheromone to attract the crab spider when the bush is being attacked by herbivorous um, insects uh, it attracts it sends out this pheromone which attracts the crab spider um, which will then eat the um, bugs that are bother bothering the plant it doesn't do this all the time because obviously it wants honeybees it wants honeybees to pollinate so there's you know there's a trade-off but it does it sometimes when it's being attacked I think that's just a wonderful story but um I talk about I have this picture because it's about eating and there's so you know so much wrong with our food system we can explore that maybe if you've got questions um but I talk a lot about food but also about what you wear and I, I decided to illustrate what you wear with one of my favorite bees which is the hairy-footed flower bee and and I caught this just down my road um, last year with my smartphone. It's not a brilliant picture. It's not absolutely in focus, but I just think they're so wonderful. Hairy footed. What's not to like? Brilliant pollinator. Um, but our clothes and our text textiles, our furniture, our, you know, our chairs and all those kind of things absolutely um, uh, can have such a huge impact on the invertebrates, you know, purely in I just looked at cotton in a, in, a, um, in detail. I actually have been working with an organization called Pesticides Action Network for many years. Pesticides Action Network have been looking at cotton because it's one of the highest uses per hectare of um, pesticides, particularly insecticides, because of a, a, it's, it's very vulnerable 
to certain insect pets, the cotton boll worm in particular, but we've used insecticides across the globe as we've grown and grown more and more um, uh, cotton for a very fast fashion industry. You know, so there's this awful thing. Sometimes people wear a t-shirt once and then throw it away because they don't can't be bothered to wash it. You know, we've got this fashion's gone mad and we don't need as many clothes as we buy. We certainly, you know, the, the most sustainable clothes you've got are probably the ones you're wearing. You know, don't buy new ones, you know, reuse, recycle, share, swap um, and all those things because the cotton, the wool, the leather, all these things have a massive impact. And they even have a big impact on the, the water environment because of the dyes that are used in production that can be really toxic to water invertebrates. So, you know, there's a lot to say about spat textiles and clothes and furniture um, having a big impact. And also there's all the minerals that are mined globally for your watches, for our you know, phones, for our TVs. All those have a big impact as well. Mining anywhere is it's more localized impact, but it's it's very strong. So we should be reusing, recycling, certainly recycling all the metals that we are using in order to reduce the need for more mining and reduce the need for more expansion of um, land for cropping for, for textiles. So the final thing I talk about in the book um, is power and inequality. Um, and that might be a weird thing to find people find they're reading about, you know, why am I reading about power and politics when I wanted to learn about invertebrates? But it's the most important thing. We know how powerful the um, vested interests are in maintaining the status quo for, for invertebrates in terms of pesticide use, in terms of expansion of agriculture and intensity of agriculture, which means loss of the habitats that they need um, and for selling us junk food, which we don't need. Um, a lot of the junk food that is eaten is absolutely dependent on very cheap raw materials from um, agriculture, like um, oils and grains and um, oils, grains and proteins, very cheap in large monocultures produced very cheaply with lots of chemicals. That is junk food writ large and it's a massive impact on the invertebrates. So we need a, as people to be a, a counter power to those vested interests who are you know, are wanting rules to be weakened, laws to be weak, to, for politicians not to take action when it, it clearly isn't action needed. And so joining with organisations, talking to your um, politicians, your representatives in government is absolutely critical and joining together because we, you know, those vested interests have millions and they billions of pounds. I looked at how much the um, industry is in America, how much they have, because you could have some good um, freedom of information um, laws in America, which we don't have. You can find out how much is spent on lobbying and it's enormous. Billions spent every year by the agrochemical industry. So the only thing we've got is, is ourselves as movements to change that. So I talk about that. And one of the other things I talk about is inequality because when inequality it's very difficult when people are really poor um, suppressed without power it's very hard for them to protect the environment they often have to move into into areas like previously forested areas and, and make a living um, or do things differently um, and it, you know there's loads of re loads of issues around inequality which I probably am time to get we could talk about but the UN has as the United Nations have made it clear that inequality matters for biodiversity and and want to do something about it but that's a big political issue but it's worth talking about because um yeah I did find also that you there's a lot of parallels in the um invertebrate world but it's it's an interesting area about um power and inequity and distribution of wealth distribution of resources absolutely critical everywhere 
including in the, the natural environment. Um, this is a ladybird. Um, I think you might call them lady, I can't remember what you call them in America, but um, ladybugs, that's it, ladybugs eating a, um, a caterpillar, I think, here in my garden. I get loads of ladybug um, larvae um, and the adults and the um, larvae, both the predators, they're really useful um, predators of pests in your, if you've got roses or food crops. Um, if you encourage the ladybugs, then you'll get some control of those aphids and other crop pests. Um, but the funny thing about that, you know, I, I, that's what I did my um, degree in, and you probably know about this, that um, the, if you want to encourage the predators of pests, you've got to leave some pests because they've got to have something to eat. And that's something for the farmers and growers who want to keep everything pristine, find hard to accept. Um, but you can, you can allow some of the bugs to come in order to have that balance between bugs and pests. And the, the best way you can control invasion of pests is having a more, more diverse growing pattern, having more crops and farmers having more diversity in their rotations, more crops and also habitats where those um, predators will live. Absolutely critical. All these things that organic farmers have been doing for years, farmers are beginning to learn again about how to encourage the predators of the prey, like rove beetles, brilliant at eating slugs, all these kind of things, but they need a habitat that's safe for them. And this is the ladybird larvae. It, it's so ferocious, it looks like a little dragon. And when you show people the picture, they can't believe that's a ladybird, <laughs> and it is. Um, oh, this is just to... Um, uh, yeah, illustrate uh, a two-sided industry. They'll talk about green, green stuff they're doing, but it's sometimes greenwash. So I've got two sides of a Jersey tiger moth, which happened to land on my um, window pane. Just shows a beautiful colour you don't usually see on the underside. But I think you know we've got to be really alert to the greenwashing that sometimes happen. Even you know this pesticide that you can buy in your supermarket, it's safe for the bugs. Is it? Is it really? All sorts of greenwashing goes on every day in front of you in the marketing by these companies so yeah this is just things that I talk about what you've got in the book to, to look at um, and there's so much information now available you've got brilliant organizations in, in America to to help um, with you with doing things differently organic organizations and others in the UK we have the same um, but the website loads of things but the important thing you can do is share that knowledge with others and um, be part of the movement for change by sharing by being that um, uh, by being an ambassador for the bugs and I tell people that you know people say well what can I do and I said well have a little think about it and have a plan for three things what you can do in your garden or your house what you can do in your life in terms of what you eat what you buy or preferably what you don't buy um, and your politics with a small p um, so just three areas and that's a really bugging plan and this is a hollyboo butterfly on an alkanet um, which is a weed people say it's a weed it's got this beautiful blue flowers and it grows everywhere if you let it and I've let it in my garden and I get these amazing butterflies coming in and every, everything loves the alkanet blue flowers I get beetles flies wasps bees butterflies moths so letting the weeds flourish in small parts of your garden can really help help the bugs and you'll be a refuge. I think I'll leave it there. I'm sorry, I've probably talked too long. That's, um, that's what I do, uh, but um, time for questions, I hope. What can US college students do? Well, apart from being an ambassador to everybody you know that isn't, you know, isn't in the room now, um, your family, your friends, um, people you might be working with, people you go on holiday, talk, talk to them about how important the, you know, rebugging is. That would be, um, my first thing. Second thing, it sounds like your campus has already done a lot. It's gotten a long way. A lot of universities, you know, they have car parks, they have 
um, driveways, they have roads, and that the little bits of green in between are often neglected. It doesn't sound like yours is. So one of the things I would say is like green your campus, um, but it sounds like you are doing that already. So you could be um, organizing a green in your campus campaign for other universities. It could be talking to other universities through. I don't. I, I don't quite know how the university structure is in America, but if there's inter-university activities, talking to them about what you did, how how it was, how you could do it like affordably, cheaply, um, and giving like a toolkit for other universities would be something else. Um, also, in your lives, you know, cooking, what what you buy and what you eat um, will make a huge difference, and you know, throughout your life. You know, you're the next generation also who's, you know, going to be eating, buying, cooking. So going for those fresh produces and uh, less junk, certainly less packaged junk, because packaging is a huge environmental problem for the invertebrates, but also um, trying to buy fresh and from, from farmers, if you can, which is difficult, sometimes more expensive, things like organic, but those organic farmers need to be supported. Um, but even if you're just buying, it's not organic, but it's fresh, more of the money should be going back to the farmer. So they can then do things properly. This is what I campaign a lot on. I, I could talk for hours about farming, um, but uh, it's it's you've got a very different farming system in America. I know that, but um, it's really important that farmers are really supported in changing. So, and then I guess finally, I would say if you've got um, student societies and student um, events, talk talk at those and get other students interested. You know who aren't doing this course and aren't, aren't already the understanding why we need to rebug, actually offering to do talks, offering to, you know, um, share information about that. Um, yeah, I think those are a few things you could do. Hope that's, that's useful. <laughs> How can we help rebug cities like New York and London? <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, really good question. I mean, the interesting thing when I started writing this book, I was thinking of cities as, um, you know, yeah, we've got to rebug cities. But actually, a lot of cities, and in fact, I, I found a great study in America where they'd found cities an amazing refuge, a really critical refuge for the bugs that no longer find a home in rural areas. Um, and one of the reasons for that is people have gardens and obviously very built up cities. You don't have gardens. <laughs> that's that's a, another thing. But where you have got gardens, you know, making sure that people are actually having a, a bug friendly garden, lower, chem less chemicals, more diverse. Try not to have just boring lawns, cut lawns. Cut, I hate it when I see boring ryegrass lawns because they could be such a, a rich area for, for underground and above ground but if you if you have a lawn that you let go to seed and have um, a variety of crops in it it can be an incredible refuge and a place for um, uh, invertebrates to find food sources find shelter um, but in a, a very built-up area and I have I've, I've been lucky enough to visit New York and that is very built up but you've got wonderful parks and I know what you could do is more mini parks I don't know if you've heard of the mini forest revolution, not revolution isn't the right word, but initiative. There's a mini forest initiative where you build a very tiny forest in an urban area. And I think there would be some great places in New York where you could do that, even in Central Park, in um, Times Square. How amazing it would be to have a little forest. And in that forest, it could be a, it could mean the difference between a um, butterfly moving from Central Park to another park you know, further around, it can be that stopping staging post, a vital one for an insect. So building up those spaces, the mini forest is possibly going too far, but I think it's a brilliant idea because it also shows people in the area what, what 
invertebrates are, what trees are, how trees are amazing. And trees are incredibly cooling. You know, tree, we're, we're getting more and more temperatures extremes. That's not going to stop. We're going to get temperatures. Extreme. And trees are incredible for cooling a city, but they're also incredible for invertebrates. We also have a, an initiative here called um, Community, um, uh, an orchard project, where you build orchards available for urban communities. So that's another type of forest where you're actually growing fruit trees with the community. So they every year when the harvest is done, the community is involved in the harvest and you get children picking apples in the middle of a city. It's wonderful. But that means that you've got to petition your local authority to allocate land. I, I'm trying to do that a lot now in the UK, getting local authorities thinking differently about their land assets if your local authorities have land assets. So that would mean petitioning, you know, the mayor of New York to think more about having more small green spaces across the city. Um, so that's a political job. Um, it also might be a, a job about um, petitioning uh, big companies and corporations. They want to look green, don't they? So they could be greening their car parks. They could be greening their roofs. They could be greening, you know, all sorts around their spaces. I, I mean, a lot of people talk about green walls. I'm a bit skeptical about green walls. They're, they are good, but they require a lot of watering. And, you know, I don't, don't know if we're always going to have water available for that. Um, but they can be good, but better to have you know, plants that are actually self-sufficient on the roofs, on the window ledges, on the ground, um, and getting plants everywhere. Um, it's possible to do an awful lot. And we've got an initiative called Edible, um, Incredible Edibles, which is doing that in so many cities across the UK, greening little spaces and putting food in biodiverse, rich food spaces everywhere. Even in fire stations, they've got fire, um, uh, firemen and women involved in greening the little spaces outside a fire station where it's safe obviously you don't want to get in, in the way of the fire engines but getting communities and uh, workers involved in in rebugging in a city um, they you'll find there's loads of small spaces and it doesn't take you know it's unlike a wolf if you're trying to reintroduce rewilding they need a huge area bugs don't need a large area to get to get there and they will find it if you build it they will come um. How much rebugging might you expect to see in the next 50 years? 50 years. 5-0, yeah. Um, well, my dream would be to reverse all the really um, scary statistics that are around now um, by rebugging both in city and rural areas, in urban and rural areas. Um, so it would be to see that by in, in 2050 or even in, in yeah, 20. Where are we now? 2050. So you're talking about 2073. Um, I'd want, we need action well before then. So I think in 15 years, we've got to see action. Um, and we've got a huge amount of political um, talk. Um, I don't know if you all know about the COP, the COP system, the Conference of the Parties, the UN. Um, and that's where they meet at an international level, the UN um, nations that have signed up to the UN um, Convention on Biological Diversity, and they also signed up to the um, climate um, agreement on climate change. Both are absolutely critical, but there's an awful lot of talk and a lot, a lot of targets um, sort of promised at those talks. And, and, you know, for the last 30 years, I've been watching the Convention on Biological Diversity, and those targets come and go and don't get met. Um, and it's Again, I, you know, it sounds really difficult, but the only thing that's really going to make them met is you and me and movements and people. Um, people take into the streets if they have to, to say, look, stop killing the bees, have laws that protect the bees. 
because we've seen targets come and go, as I said, from these institutions and governments promise things. So unless we actually start to really petition, um, I don't think enough will happen because the forces of, of um, the opposite have got a huge amount of power and it's in their interest to keep things as they are business as usual so the only thing that's going to really counter that is is us um i mean i think there's good politicians there that could you know could change things around so there's that side of it but also it'd be really great if you if we had a rebugging plan for every city um and a rebugging plan for a school a rebugging plan for a business and that's partly why the, the idea could could work really well because it's quite easy to understand you know rebugging your um school rebugging your home it kind of makes sense it's also not that expensive it's not a huge you know it's not involving large amounts of uh, kit um you know you can often get plants free from local businesses or you, if you just leave a space to grow things will grow in it and then you'll get the bugs um so it can be absolutely free but the problem there is not problem but the challenge there is to make sure everybody around that space understands what's going on so actually talking to the local community saying yeah it looks messy but it's actually a really rich space it's a rich space for you it'll feed the the birds that you love to hear as you walk to work in the morning it'll feed you know it'll um uh, be a wonderful green space that your children will see they'll be able to understand nature you know there's so many reasons so many things to talk to your community about why you might be letting a green space grow so it's yeah it's a, I, I'm hopeful I'm hopeful but I would like I would love to be able to run a whole campaign you know full-time with an organization of 50 people to make sure every school is rebugging every university is rebugging and all that kind of thing but I don't have the money yet <laughs> I need a rich philanthropist to give me some money I should talk to um Bill Gates he's got lots of money uh, can you walk us through some like beginner steps you think would be useful to starting a pollinator garden or a small space where we can I don't know, allow more wild plants to grow? Well, as I said, one way is just, just leave it. Um, if you've got soil, and for the soil there, um, see what grows. It's incredible what you find. I mean, people who, we've got a campaign here called No Mow May. Um, and it's about trying not to mow your lawn at a time when it could grow um, into, into flowers, into grasses with seeds and uh with uh, seed heads and stuff, which then can re-seed uh, a, a garden with a whole variety of things. And people have been doing that for the last couple of years. And the, the social media reaction has been amazing because people say, I had no idea that could grow in my garden. I had no idea my lawn could have this, that and the other, because all they've done every year is just have boring ryegrass grass every year. And the other thing people are doing is, um, is uh, mowing bits of it so they can still sit in it. But then that people have been doing wonderful things like checkerboards, like a chess chessboard thing. So you can still sit in it, still enjoy your garden as a space to sit in or lie in or have your hammock. Um, but letting the, the other bits grow and people are being really creative. That, that's one way of um, doing things simply. If you've if you've got a um, just a concrete area, I mean, and if, if it isn't possible to sort of get permission to do dig up that concrete or that tarmac, then raised beds, things like that would be really good idea and you could possibly get um, local building companies to provide you with timber to make raised beds for free if they you know you put a little sponsored by on the side you know get freebies from them or um, large tubs or even tires there's a wonderful woman in the UK who she's called Wildlife Kate on Twitter and she has got a whole thing in, in her advice about building stacks of tires you know old car tires and then filling those with soil 
and then they they you can have um, a load of those in an area and they'll attract loads of plants and then you can build soil around them as well and some of them you could put water in so they become a, um, a pond because one of the things that you can also do in the garden is the diversifying what you grow but also diversifying the habitats in the garden having a little pond amazing what you can do with a pond i i found an old um plastic tub during lockdown and put it in the garden because i didn't have a pond and within days i was getting visitors like um, wolf spiders wasps all needing that water and it was wonderful i was feeling i was like watering the bugs in the whole area because i'm a little bit surrounded by concrete um in my terrace i'm in north london so having a pond as well could be really good but getting freebies from from local companies who would be able to help you the other thing that we do in my organization we do skip gardens where you can um get a skip from a local skip motion, maybe one that's no longer needed, fill it with soil. Again, trying to get that from your local authority. You know, soil is not in um, short in short supply. Um, it's incredible how much soil is just put into landfill. When when you get a housing development, they dig up or a development of you know new buildings, they'll dig up the soil and just put it in landfill. This is such a precious thing, the soil. Unbelievable. It's a living organism with incredible richness of um, mycorrhiza and organisms you probably all know this anyway but you can get that for free if you if you look around and fill those skip containers and then they can be incredible places for growing food for growing flowers and and using bamboo poles you can often get bamboo poles in people's gardens they grow bamboo and then they cut them and you get poles and then you get the 3d effects so you can have plants on the ground and growing them up and then you'll create an amazing habitat in a very small space it's possible for for the bugs growing beans up the up the um, poles and things um, there's some plants that you know are rapacious they'll grow anywhere and they'll go out of control and sometimes that's fine like the passion flower which i showed you earlier with the bee and the ant that just goes crazy and it's got the most incredible flowers and it'll take over a whole space very quickly i don't know where it comes from i think from asia maybe but it's incredibly successful here and you have to curb its curb its enthusiasm uh, a bit um but if you if you put one in a space it will grow and it'll find ways to grow up a wall and things like that so i i yeah so find you know beg and steal and borrow containers if if you've only got a, a, a concrete space to, to fill obviously you need to get permission things like that but if it's it's only temporary if it's movable so but talk to people about wh why it's important for them to let you use their space and I, there's a, other initiatives like bus stops bus stops there's um in uh, utrecht i think it is in the netherlands they've got um bee friendly bus stops where the roofs are all seeded with sedums and flower small scrub flowering plants and so they get bees on all the bus stops what a great idea i mean another idea for bus stops is to put solar panels on them um maybe you could have half and half but to have every surface on a city covered with plants so the bees can can and other invertebrates can uh, find a refuge find a food source land and feel safe and safe from you know the the birds that eat them and etc so you know th that's another idea finding every surface there's a particular uh, invertebrate group that needs the most help right now? That's a good question. Um, I've talked a lot about bees and they do get a lot of attention and that's a lot to do with their economic importance because obviously not only do they pollinate, uh, you know, a third of our crops and actually, you know, they're important in terms of um, productivity as well. If you remove the wild bees, you often get lower productivity of fruit crops, things like that. So it's it's not just honeybees, it's the wild bee population, really, really important. They, and they also produce honey, which is obviously a very important um, 
economically. So they, they get a lot of attention, I think it's probably quite rightly, and they've also been incredibly harmed by um, these insecticides that came along a few few decades ago called neonicotinoids. Does that ring a bell to you all, neonicotinoids? Yeah. Um, and they've been banned. I mean, at least people are, are you know, starting to control use. That's, that's better than nothing um, because they're incredibly powerful. You know, just a tiny, tiny amount will um, be lethal to the bees and to other invertebrates. Uh, but the, the studies have been done on the bees. So that's why we know that we've got to um, control them. I mean, the other one, obviously, in America that I've learned about quite a bit. Well, you've got a big risk to aquatic stoneflies um, and species that live in the aquatic environment through pollution. Um, and that's studies in America have been really concerned about, you know, seeing that happening in America. Um, so that's the stoneflies, the mayflies, um, dragonflies as well, which obviously have their aquatic larval stage. All those uh, the, the studies are really worrying. In, I know that in America, um, really crashing population. We have the same problem here because we've got a huge amount of pollution, both in terms of um, sewage pollution, fertilizer pollution and pesticide pollution. Um, and you've also got over extraction of water. So those aquatic species we know are in real trouble. And I know that's the case in America. But you've also got the monarch butterfly, which is a very flagship species in America. We all know about the monarch over in Europe. Um, it's incredible, incredible um, natural phenomena um, threatened through the overzealous removal of milkweed, which is in, it's um, where it lays its eggs. And that's removal of the milkweed, but also suggestion of um, use of glyphosate, which is a, a, one of the most widely used chemicals in, globally. It's an incredibly effective weed killer, but there are increasing studies showing it's affecting all sorts of populations because it's removing the uh, the important weed species for for many populations. So it's hard to it's hard to put my finger on, but I suppose if I was going to say I'm worried about anything, it would be the humble earthworm. Um, earthworms are ubiquitous in soils across the globe, and um, obviously different species of worm. I shouldn't just say earthworm, but um, and nematodes, but they're so critical. You know, I don't. We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be here without um, fungi. But I think we wouldn't be here without earthworms either. And so when they're being threatened by climate change and habitat damage and over plowing of soils, I think that's one thing we should be most worried about. As you can see, I find it hard to answer your question and pick one. <laughs> um, but when I looked into it, there was a whole um, issue of Nature magazine. I think it was Nature about worms and about this meta study showing that, you know, all the worm research around the world, they'd gathered it all together um, into one um, edition of that magazine. And it was very, very worrying. I had earthworms on the front. And I, I was looking at that and thinking, this is deeply scary. But in a way, it depends on, you know, we've got to make choices. You know, do we want to continue to eat so much and waste so much food? If not, then we can save all these insects. You know, we can, if we live, live more lightly and waste less, we won't need so much land. So um, as a biologist, who would you say your biggest influences in driving you and inspiring you to go into this particular field of work? That's a really good question. I have to say one of the probably the, the biggest influence at a critical point in my life was when I was 16 and I went to a sixth, a sixth form in a different school than I was before. And we had a biology teacher and uh, she was just so enthusiastic about biology that I, I fell in love with it more than I was already, you know. And one of the things she did when I was in the upper sixth, which is the last year you're at school, she got me a, a summer job 
working at a, a place called Rothamsted Experimental Station, which is one of the leading, long, it's been around for many hundreds of years, and it happened to be in my hometown in Hartmanden, Hertfordshire. So I got a job over the summer as a teenager, counting bees coming in and out of their hives. I mean, it was a dream summer job. But I think now, when I think about it now, and I, I didn't talk about that much in the book, but um, I think that was a pivotal moment because I was sitting there counting the bees and having, you know, being at one with the bees. They weren't bothered by me mostly. Um, although at one point, one bee, a guard bee, just sounded so different. The, the sound of its wings, the, the, the buzz was completely different than what I was, you know, after several weeks of sitting there counting them, I was used to the noise. This one was different. And it went round around my head it landed on my face and I was trying to be really strong. This bee with a horrible buzz, you know, really angry buzz. And until it, it just got to my nose and then I tried to flick it away and it stung me. Um, but it was communicating with me. And I had a, I had this, you know, I think now at that point, that was an amazing communication that I had with an invertebrate. And obviously it wasn't particularly nice for me, but from then on, I was, I think I was stuck. So that teacher was really important. I also think the other person that's probably been the most inspiration for me, just because of the TV programs that he's made is David Attenborough. He's been a, all through my life, he's been there showing how beautiful and amazing wildlife is and nature is, and he's still doing it. He's 94 and he's still running programs. We're about to get a new series on the TV in the UK. I have you all heard of David Attenborough? Yeah, he's, he's a TV um, presenter, but he's also an amazing biologist and he's, um, he's 94 now. He's still campaigning for the environment and uh, I've, I've, I have met him only very briefly, but I just think he's an incredible advocate. He's also an incredible communicator. Um, and then I've met, I've had a lot of really great lecturers, but I wouldn't want to pick any of them out. But um, I think probably David Attenborough has been my biggest inspiration and the guy that I actually work for at Rothamsted is a guy called John Free, Professor John Free, who's a really leading expert on bees and bee pheromones and he, he was great. He also wrote poems about invertebrates which you know a lot of entomologists you find write poems. I've found that since I published this book. There's a lot of bug poetry out there. I also talk in the book about how important bugs are for our culture. You know there's so much of our culture, so much of our language. It uses bee meta um, uses invertebrate metaphors and um, so much art, so much literature is, is somehow connected with the invertebrates. And uh, I think we've also got an, sorry, I've gone off topic there. Um, but uh, David, David Attenborough and um, Mrs. Rawlinson, my teacher when I was very young, I think uh, it's really amazing when you can be inspired to, to like something because it can be dull. I, we've had a problem with, with schools in the UK for the last few years that biology has been really dull taught in a, in a way which is like learning by rote not getting inspired not getting your hands dirty and as a result neither of my sons I've got two sons and neither of them are taking up biology and it breaks my heart <laughs> just I try you know whenever I go on holiday with them I try to inspire them about biology but they've all ended up doing history which is also very interesting but you know so annoying um so, <laughs> what about natural history <laughs> Yeah, I'm just, I'm a bit sad. I've, I'm, I'm really, really keen to get one of your brilliant um, animating film companies like Pixar. I think, does Pixar still exist or Disney? To do, a, there's a brilliant story to be told about the soil and, I, you know, about springtails. Uh, you could have a fantastic 
um, animation about springtails because they're just so gorgeous. The globular springtail is to die for, you know, if you, but nobody sees them because they're underground and they're minuscule. Um, but we actually look at pictures of springtails. There's guys on Instagram who photograph springtails and they're just fantastic. And you could have a wonderful tale of a sort of springtail versus a, a worm or a springtail and mites, you know, spider mites, you know, anyway, that's what I want to see. So you're filming filming and, and writing and uh, uh, all those kind of things are very important for the future as well. What do you think the best way is to shift the public eye to a more positive view on that? That's uh, it's a great question. Actually, the first main chapter in my book is called Rebugging Your At Attitudes, because I think that's possibly one of the most important things. Because if people don't have a, a, a positive relationship with bugs how can we get them to be part of the movement for protecting them and as I said children start off being fascinated and not afeared but they very quickly get frightened if people put the fear into them you know that's dirty it's going to give you diseases it's going to sting you and so I do talk about you know all the things you can do in the book things like and I have mentioned this before taking photographs and showing them on social media and then saying did you know spiders I one of my best tweets that I ever got um retweeted and likes was a a, a diagram of a spider and all the things it does in your house and that got retweeted so many times I think maybe somebody famous retweeted it but it got retweeted and liked so many so many reactions so many comments so those kind of social media things can be really important if it's your picture your photograph or your drawing if you're a, a drawer as well which I'm not um you know showing the the animal which how it's beautiful it is those an fluffy antennae or um you know the the colors the extraordinary colors of the invertebrates um and then a little bit about what they do, starting to raise awareness with everybody you know, because you all have a, a tribe, you all have a community around you that don't know this stuff. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't think they'd be bored by it. I think people assume, oh, I don't want to talk about, you know, my degree or what I'm working on because people don't want to hear about that. I think people are really interested in nature now. I think there's a lot more um, interest. Obviously, it, it's important not to bore them. <laughs> But uh, I think your family, your friends, your workmates, your um, grandparents, you know, anybody you're, you know, um, connected with, you have an opportunity to, to make them into part of the rebugging movement, which we absolutely need to, to talk to your local authorities about doing things different, to talk to the government, to talk to your president. I'm sure your president is, is interested, but um, he's got a lot on his plate. <laughs> but I think, he, you know... <laughs> But, you know, your senators, get your senators and your representatives to actually um, listen to you and and uh, your friends and family, particularly listening to young people about this is going to make the difference and, and join the organisations that exist. I, I did I did put in the back of the book a list of the, you probably know them all already, some American organ because I did write this for a, a, a publishing house in Vermont, Chelsea Green, um, and they, so it, it does cover America a bit. Um, and I've put organizations that, at the back that you can join the Audubon, Audubon and Sierra Club and National Wildlife Federation, all those, they should be extremely active as uh, campaigners. And, you know, everybody should be a campaign. Everybody should be doing rebugging campaign um, because the, the insects are such an important part, even if they only care about the birds. You can't have birds if you haven't got insects and invertebrates, you know, if, if, it, if they care about bats 
no bats, no bats with no insects. So they're, they're really a, a critical part, not just of the food chain. You don't want them just to think as food as, as, as part of the whole ecology, which you all know that anyway, but other people don't. So if, if you know a friend who, who is a bird lover, you, could, you can make them a bug lover as well and part of your campaign. Um, so yeah, asking questions of your family and friends about what they're interested in and then associating it with bugs. I think you can do that with bugs. <laughs> you can make a connection. There's, there's actually a connection to bugs with everything. Everything I'm looking at now on my very messy desk is only here because of the bugs. Um, and you can make those connections in a fun way to you, to your friends and family and to your tribe and, and get them the book. Yeah. <laughs> and if you can't afford the book, I do have a website with quite a lot of stuff on it as well, rebuggingtheplanet.org. But um, yeah, so I, and, and do take those photographs you know, the visuals are so important. Well, Ola, thank, thank, you, thank you very, very much. My again pleasure. Great to meet you. Us. Us. Um, really, it's an honor to have you come on in. And I appreciate you coming in, you know, with five hour time difference after your dinner. But you're working it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Thank <laughs> you for having me. Well, good luck with your rebugging. <laughs> thank you so very much. Bye bye. Bye-bye. I'll send you some emails. Thank you. Okay, good luck. Bye. Bye. Well, I think we can all agree that was a wonderful uh, opportunity. I'm so glad that Vicky Hurd was willing to come in and speak with us. As she alluded to, we're doing lots of stuff on campus right now, very much in this line. We have taken more than two-thirds of the campus and declared it a natural area. We have eliminated corn in our floodplain. We're planting a lot of trees, we're revegetating, and we're revegetating specifically with natural native vegetation whenever possible. We have created some no-more zones and we'd like to create more. And then on main campus proper, we are planting more native trees to encourage more native insects to in turn provide the food supply for our native birds. So that's what we're doing. Um, thank you once again for listening to this and uh, I'll be back with a more traditional audio podcast in weeks to come. So long. That's all for today, folks. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please consider subscribing wherever you find your podcasts. This is a bi-weekly podcast, so you can expect a new episode every other Friday. Thank you once again for listening.